Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. You know, I know of many moral people who don't have any religious values at all. I don't think morality and religion, I think they overlap but they certainly aren't contiguous. For the simple reason that, you know, if you just look at the ways in which religion can be distorted, the way in which authority and political authority distort religion and make it into something that it never was intended to be, the sort of intolerant and absolutely abusive ways in which religion has been used to justify all kinds of political power grabs. So I don't think religion and morality are necessarily have much in common. I think there are some people who draw on religion and find it an enormous source of spiritual and moral values, but there's nothing inherent about religion and morality living together or somehow co-inhering. In 1844, German philosopher and economist Karl Marx wrote, religious suffering is at one and the same time the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is a sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, in tonight's show, we're going to examine the uneasy relationship between religion and politics in modern democracies and tease out how and where we find meaning in life. Writer, philosopher and author Roger Scruton unpacks why a sense of the sacred is so essential to human life. And Anna Gazi Mawabose talks nations under God, how churches use moral authority to influence policy. This is a show about morality and manipulation, practice and belief, beauty and transcendence. But first, does philosophy have all the answers? In The Soul of the World, English philosopher and writer Roger Scruton argues, We single out great works of art generally, and great works of music in particular, because they make a difference to our lives. They grant us an intimation of the depth and worthwhileness of things. Great works of art are the remedy for our metaphysical loneliness. Even if their message is comfortless, like the ninth and tenth symphonies of Mahler or the sixth of Tchaikovsky, it is a comforting comfortlessness, so to speak a proof to the troubled listener that is not alone. Roger Scruton is one of England's most distinguished and controversial philosophers and the author of over 40 books, including The Aesthetics of Architecture, The Aesthetics of Music, How to Be a Conservative, The Face of God, Beauty, A Very Short Introduction, Sexual Desire and Green Philosophy. Well, over the weekend, I got a chance to talk to Roger about his 2014 book, The Soul of the World published by Princeton University Press. Roger brought me up to speed on life in Scrutopia. I'm Roger Scruton, a writer and philosopher. I'm essentially a freelance intellectual. For the last 25 years, I've been trying to maintain myself largely by writing books, giving public lectures, and uh, sitting at home shaping my thoughts. Roger, I might start off with a big wide open question for you. Are we losing sense of the sacred in life? And as such, are we on the path to self-destruction? Well, that's a huge question. (laughs) Uh, It it is obviously the case, well, obvious to me anyway, that people are losing a sense of the sacred. They no longer have the feeling that the world is is visited from any other place beyond it. You know, their world is a, a world of plain facts, obvious things, technology, 
means to ends, but very little that reveals a meaning from beyond. And I think, you know, people used to find that meaning from beyond, not just in religious rituals, or that's important, obviously, but in things like marriage and the family and, uh, and devotion to their, their community and to small-scale local celebrations. And that aspect of life has dwindled. I think we can't deny that. People have become more solipsistic, more solitary. Many people actually live alone with their television or with their iPod or whatever it might be. And I think this is something which is very new and also, in my view, very regrettable. Whether it is permanent, of course, I don't know. I think there's a human need to back out of that, as it were, to turn round to the sun and see the light again. But for the moment, people are, I think, living very much in darkness. So in some ways we're looking for meaning, but we're not looking in the right places. Is that what you mean? I think that's right, yes. Uh, I mean... I can't speak for everyone, but there is a people are looking for meaning in in excitement and in new sensations, new things to consume and to exploit. When in fact, meaning comes from within and from from calm and quiet, and also from relations of uh, of love and commitment. And uh, you know, so I think we are very much looking in the wrong place, hoping that somehow we can be stimulated into finding meaning uh, when in fact meaning visits us when we're not stimulated. Roger, your latest book, The Soul of the World, it's an extraordinary read. It's uh, very, very profound. It's complex in parts now, I have to say, but it's very, very challenging. And one of the aspects of the book that you look at is what is it to regard a thing as sacred? Mm. Can you talk to me about that? Yes, uh, I mean, it, is, it is a very difficult notion, but one that's very obvious to people in their natural condition. You know, all, all uh, tribes that anthropologists observed in the 19th century had this experience of the sacred right at their heart. And um, I think we did, uh, and we can still rediscover it. Essentially, it's the sense that certain events, moments, objects, people, uh, rituals and so on are as though taking place somewhere else, taking place eternally and outside the normal confines of space and time. And, and one sees reflected in those things an idea of, of human destiny, an idea that actually it doesn't matter that we die, that we are safe in some deep sense. I think many people have this in moments through nature, through observing beautiful things and those sudden moments of, of revelation at, at sunset most people have it when falling in love or when uh, with the birth of a child and they recognize that this moment stands outside time in some way it's very hard to put it into words which is why we have the concept after all but it's a sense of beauty is what you're describing there and in ways it can be quite tangible you can walk into a cathedral you can look at a fantastic painting Mm. or you can have a cool breeze run through you but in other ways, it's something that we can't fully understand either. Yes. You can't properly pin that down. It's that mystery. Yes, I mean, it's not just the momentary experience. It's a sense that in this moment, you have been taken up and, as it were, transformed. You're turned in another direction as though you were picked up by a great hand and turned round away from your normal preoccupations towards something that has a, a far deeper meaning than anything you've seen before. And you take it with you through life. I mean, we all can remember those moments. We don't necessarily stay loyal to them, as many people don't stay loyal to their first love or to the the moment of falling in love and so on. But they will nevertheless look back from their future life at those moments and say, yes, well, then it did mean something. And that was the thing that I should be answering to. 
Do you think, Roger, that we've got bogged down or somewhat overly obsessed to explain everything, to understand everything, to have this kind of rigour, analytical rigour on everything? And in some ways that has taken from our experiences of life. Yes, I think that is that is true. Of course, it's quite understandable from the 17th century onwards, the, the, the scientific worldview has been conquering one space after another, giving us explanations of things that we never dreamt that we could ever explain, you know, like the origins of the universe, the size of the universe, the way in which animals respond to stimuli. All these things are extraordinary, and science does in its own way. It unravels the mystery, but it unravels it in a way that also leaves it mysterious in another way. It's mysterious that anything should be explicable at all. If you look at ranges of human emotion, whether it's grief, you mentioned falling in love, uh, fear, there are certain explanations that we can have for it, but we can never fully know. Yes. I think um, when it comes to our own mental life, that's absolutely true, that we look for explanations, and of course we find that by looking for an explanation, we actually destroy the thing we're trying to explain. You see this to a great extent in, in psychoanalytic patients who are given these elaborate theories, most of them metaphors or worse, and think that they've now at last understood them, themselves, but in fact all they've done is transform themselves into something less important. I think that you know, the bad use of science is in undermining our conception of ourselves. Now, I have to thank you for something, Roger. You've introduced me to the works of Patricia Churchland. I had not come across her work Mm. before. And one of the questions that she's asked herself was, what has philosophy contributed to understanding of human mental processes? What do you say to that? Well, uh, (laughs) obviously, I I take issue with her in one respect, because, I mean, she's absolutely right that a great deal of philosophy is is a load of waffle about these things. But uh, her aim is to replace philosophy with neuroscience. Her view is that we have tried to make sense of the human condition using the ordinary concepts of what she calls folk psychology, you know, the concepts that you and I have just been using to describe our states of mind, uh, and that these concepts are inevitably makeshift, rough and ready. They're adapted to our immediate needs, but not part of any thorough scientific explanation. So we need to replace them, replace them with the ideas of neuroscience and just talk about the brain and not about all these uh, extraordinary effusions like love and grief and desire and so on. Now, my view is that that is an interesting project, but it, it is bound in the end to fail because what puzzles us is not the brain, it's the conscious experience, the sense of something happening to me in the moment of falling in love or the moment of losing a loved one or or whatever it is. And it's understanding that state of mind and how it is directed towards the world, how it conceptualizes the world. That's really what philosophy has tried to do. And of of course, she's absolutely right that it has failed. But I think we should take a lesson from Samuel Beckett, you know, fail, fail again, fail better. But she has some points to recognise that we have to ask ourselves deep questions and see what the patterns are. Can I ask you, in your philosophy of the mind or your philosophy understanding of states, what are the questions that you're asking yourself? What are the deep questions that you feel unsure with? That's a really good question. Um, Well, the most important questions for me are, are those to do with our way of understanding the world when we're looking for meaning. Uh, We understand the world in terms of beauty, its beauty, 
in terms of the lovable, the desirable, the fulfilling, and so on. Those, those ideas, what, what exactly do they mean and what states of mind are they connected with in the, in the ordinary person? You know, when you find something beautiful, for, for example, what is this? Is it just a, a matter of being temporarily pleased with it or, or saying, yes, that's nice, like t- tasting a nice ice cream or something? Or is there something else, some other part of you that's being, as it were, awoken by this object? And if so, which part? And how are you seeing the object in order to, to be awoken in that way? Now, that's the kind of question that I'm asking philosophically. Many people say that's a really better dealt with by sort of continental schools of philosophy which specialize in phenomenology, you know, which is the, the study of how things seem. I'm skeptical of that. I think that any normal thinking person can ask that kind of question and work his way towards an answer. And that's really all I'm doing in The Soul of the World, taking the mystery of the world as it strikes me and working towards an account of it in the language that I would naturally use. And what about nothingness? <laughs> yes, it's a real problem, nothingness. Uh, you know, there is two kinds of, of, of nothingness. There's the nothingness that exists when nothing exists, you know, the, the nothingness, as it were, that preceded the existence of the universe, if there ever was such a thing. But then there's the other active nothingness. You know, in Goethe's play, Faust, Mephistopheles, the spirit of the devil, describes himself in this way. He says, I'm the spirit that always negates. Wherever there is something, I put nothing in its place. We know people like that. All of us have had this experience of the, uh, of the real vampire predator mm. who, you know, who, whenever he finds